Our text this morning is in the Gospel of John, the the 15th chapter, (coughs) excuse me, verses 12 through 17, as our Lord continues in His farewell discourse. And this morning we look at a section of this that deals with a important subject, love. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. For apart from the power of your Holy Spirit, our eyes cannot see, our ears cannot hear, and our minds cannot comprehend the grace and goodness that you have for us in your word. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, and that contemplating that, We would love him all the more. This we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Love is a crucial part of relationships and life. To be loved is to be understood, to be valued, and to be kept close. And loving others is the greatest gift that we can give. Jesus knows this, and that is why in his last hours with his disciples, he emphasizes love. In chapters 14 and 15, Jesus mentions love 12 times. And not in passing. Over and over, Jesus tells his disciples about the importance of love, and he commands them to love. In this passage, Jesus gives us some detail about his love for us and the direction about the kind of love we should have. And so this morning, I'd like us to see two things from our text. First, we see Jesus' love for us. And then second we see our love for Jesus. 
Let's begin then by looking at Jesus' love for us. The very first verse of our passage, verse 12, forms a connection with what has preceded. Jesus has told His disciples to abide in His love. He has given them a command to love one another. He's even told them that the world will know that they are His disciples by the love they have one for another. In chapter 13 and verse 35. And so now he says something that directs their attention to his love. Look with me at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He is telling them that they are to love one another just as, or in the same proportion, or in the same way as I have loved you. Now, in the first place, this looks like it could be a great help to us. It helps give definition to love. Love is often a word that is very amorphous, very hard to understand and pin down. It can mean a great many things to a great many people. But Jesus is saying, I want you to understand what love looks like. Look at my love and you can understand it. But in the second place, this can be very daunting. Because what Jesus is doing is telling us that we have to love as he loves. We might ask ourselves the question, can I love as Jesus loves? How is that even possible? Well, Jesus tells us first what this love looks like, that it is sacrificial. In verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, this is important because it reminds us that the beginning of our love relationship with Jesus starts with Jesus. Before Jesus' sacrifice, before Jesus laid down his life, we were enemies. The Bible makes that very clear, perhaps in no place more clearly than in Romans chapter 5. Paul tells us that before Christ died, we were ungodly. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes even further to say, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Paul continues to emphasize to us, That we were not friends with Jesus. We did not love Jesus. We did not seek Jesus. But Christ died for us while we were ungodly sinners who were opposed to God. It is Jesus who made the way for us to have a relationship with him. Jesus' love is the initiating, sacrificial love. And this tells us that we cannot make peace with God by ourselves. We cannot seek after God. We cannot please God. We cannot make ourselves right with God. Even more importantly, what Jesus is telling us and Paul is telling us is we don't even want to have peace with God. We don't want to love God. God is our enemy. And we're in sin. And we're seeking self. This is why Jesus' love is so great. 
That's why Jesus tells us that no one has a greater love than this, but to lay down his life for his friends. And it's not just that Jesus initiated love, but we see that his love was costly. He laid down his life for his friends. Now, when we think about this, what Jesus says, we often apply it to things that we hear in the news or perhaps in the movies. We think about someone who has rushed into a burning building to save someone they love and lost their life. Or someone who has jumped into a lake because a loved one is drowning and they perish. Or we think about someone who has sacrificed their life in war to protect others. We often call it the ultimate sacrifice. But compared to what Jesus is saying here in verse 13, it's just a picture. It's not the same as Jesus' sacrificial love. In every other instance I've described, death is just a matter of timing. Now this doesn't diminish the sacrifice. But when someone perishes in that act of love, we often say something like, they died before their time. Or they died too soon. Because we know that death awaits everyone. And as great as that sacrifice is to give up your life for someone else, it's not as if you were going to avoid death forever. And this is important for us because it's not the case with Jesus. Jesus didn't have to die. As a matter of fact, Jesus is life itself. Do you remember back in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus committed no sin. He kept God's law in every instance. He was not subject to death. And yet, he laid down his life for his friends. Death had no power over Jesus. He did not have to lay down his life. But he did. Why? Well, Jesus tells us. For love. For the greatest of love. And Jesus' love is transformative as well as sacrificial. The Bible tells us that Jesus died for us while we were not his friends. It's Jesus' death that transforms us from enemies to friends. Jesus died for his people fully and completely knowing all of our sins and the full rebellion of our hearts. Stop for a moment and think of all the ways that you have sinned in thought, word, and action just this past week, let alone this past month or year. Think about everything you have done that you regret, that you wish you could take back, that you could undo, the harsh words you have said, the actions that you have taken that were sinful, all of the things that you wish weren't a part of your story, the things that wake you up in the middle of the night, the things that cause shame to come over you like a wave. Now remember that Jesus knows all of that. 
and he knew it all before he died for you. Before his sacrifice. Can you imagine a greater love? And yet Jesus calls us his friends. In verse 14, he says, you are my friends. In verse 15, he says, I have called you friends. And this is a blessing that we cannot begin to understand. Often we use the term friend very loosely. For people who are mere acquaintances. Someone will say, well, they're a friend of mine. And you might ask, well, how long have you known them? And you say, I I don't know, a couple of weeks. Well, where did you meet them? Well, we were, we were in line at the store together. And I found out where they work and what kind of car they drive. And, you know, we're friends. That's sometimes how we think, how broadly the definition of friend stretches. But this is an unusual term in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the only person to be called the friend of God, before Jesus speaks here, is Abraham. Think of all the giants of the faith. Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah. All of the giants of faith. None of them are called the friend of God. And only twice in the Bible, once in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, once in the New Testament in the book of James, is Abraham called the friend of God. Now why is Abraham called the friend of God? It's because God did not hide his will or his purpose from Abraham. That's what you do with your friends. You tell your friends what you're thinking, what you're doing, what your dreams are, what you're planning. And we have an example of this in Genesis chapter 18. You may remember before the destruction of Sodom, God says, shall I keep this from Abraham? And he says, no, implicitly because he's my friend. And I must tell him. God drew so close to Abraham as to call him a friend. And that closeness is what the followers of Jesus have. Jesus has opened up his will. He's opened up his desires. And not just to his disciples, but to you. He's doing it right now in this passage. He's speaking to you. You know the will of Jesus Christ because he has had it recorded in his word for you. As a matter of fact, that's one of the main themes of the Gospel of John. That Jesus brings the will of the Father to us through this word. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is declaring to you that you are his friend. That he has made that bond. But we might wonder then, secondly, how can we keep this friendship? After all, if we were enemies to Christ, what do we have to offer to Jesus? And how can we possibly measure up to any standard that Jesus would raise? And that seems immediately to be the case in verse 14. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. 
So we read that verse and we think, what does the if mean? Is there an if not in the background there? That if, if we don't do, we won't be Jesus' friends? That is, if we don't do what Jesus commands, he won't befriend us. Or even worse yet, that he'll toss us aside if we don't do what he commands. The Bible is full of statements about obeying Jesus and keeping his commands. We've seen this over and over again in the farewell discourse. But if we're not careful, we take the second clause of this verse before the first. We can think about it this way. We want to be Jesus' friend, and so therefore we need to do what he commands so that he will befriend us. It sounds so simple, but it's impossible. Because if we're not friends with Jesus, if we're enemies with Christ, if to use Jesus' language of the vine, if we're not in Christ, which means we can do nothing, how can we do something to make Jesus our friend? Well, the importance here is to look at this verse in its proper order. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That is, you show yourself to be my friends if you do what I command you. And there's an answer, I think, found here to our dilemma in the second aspect of Jesus' love in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Jesus tells us that it is his love that began the relationship. He says, you did not choose me and then try to please me. He says, I chose you. This is a love that had no beginning. This is the wonderful doctrine about God's electing love. That's what the word chose means here. It means God's electing love being set on a sinner. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Jesus is telling us that his love, his election began before time, let alone before we approached him. It's been said by a theologian that the best assurance you have that Jesus' love will never stop is that it never began. It was before time itself. Now, why do I say the wonderful doctrine of election? Many people think about election as being cold, as being unloving. But do you see what Jesus is saying here? Our relationship with him is not transactional. It's not, I do this for you, Jesus, and then you be my friend and you love me. That is cold. That is transactional. No, Jesus is saying here, in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our lack of love for him, Jesus set his love on us. Do not ever think of election as cold and unfeeling. Jesus is telling you right now that it flows from his love. 
Jesus' sacrificial love is grounded in his electing love. He chose to die for a people that he had determined to save. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ today as your Savior, know that it was by design. It was not by chance at all. You are loved with a great love. Well, I want you also to see that Jesus' love does not make him shy away from commanding us. Three times in just this short passage, Jesus gives his disciples and us a command. Now, this is perfectly consistent with love. Think about parents with children. A good parent commands their child. Now, I realize that's not often what it sounds like. Young people, I imagine dad doesn't come up to you in the morning and say, Son, I command you to clean your room. Mom doesn't say when she puts the plate in front of you, Daughter, I command you to eat this food. Right? That's not the language we use. But it really is a command, isn't it? There's authority behind what parents tell their children. And that comes to their children for their benefit. The parent directs for the child's benefit. Without that direction, there is chaos. There is harm in the home. It's one of the reasons we lament fatherless homes. Because there is a lack of direction and command and authority. All true and righteous commands are loving. Those commands are for the benefit and blessing of the one commanded. Now, I will say to you that we can make commandments that are not for the benefit of others. We can be selfish that way. I'm sure that you, like me, have issued a command to your child simply because you were tired and didn't want to deal with something. Or you issued a command simply because you wanted peace and quiet for yourself. We do that. But that, just because we can have selfish and unloving commands, does not mean God can. Because God is love. And we have a great example of this in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Those commands are given to us for our benefit and blessing. And Paul describes the law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments, as the sum of love. He says, if you want to know what love looks like, look at the law. Now, we can practically parse that out. Paul is saying, if you want to show someone you love them, don't lie to them. Don't steal from them. Don't hurt them. Encourage them. Don't covet after things they have. Point them to the Lord God. You see, the law of God practically sums up what it means to love. If you want to know if you are being loving, look at God's commands. Either in the Ten Commandments or as Jesus has summarized them in the two great commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That is practical love. And Jesus gives us his commands so that we will know 
He loves us. That brings us to our second main point. Our love for Jesus. Jesus has told us that He loves us, and He has shown it through the sacrifice on our behalf. He has told us that He loves us from all eternity, and He has chosen us because He loves us. And He loves us enough to command us to walk in the way of blessing and truth. Jesus has called us friends. So we might ask, what does a friend of Jesus look like? Well, the first thing is that a friend of Jesus hears and obeys his words. That's what Jesus says in verse 14. Remember to take the clauses in the order that Jesus has given them. You are my friends if you do what I command. It's not that we must obey Jesus for him to love us. No, it's that Jesus loves us and he has called us to himself and that means we are changed, we are made his friends. And as his friends, we will naturally show ourselves to be obedient. That's what a friend of Jesus looks like. And the Bible is very clear about this. We are unable to obey Jesus before he befriends us. Think about Romans 1. When we think about Romans 1, we, do, we don't know God and we're bound up in all kinds of sin. Think about Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to do anything for God. Think about Colossians chapter 1, where Paul tells us we were alienated and hostile, doing evil works. But then we come to two of the greatest words in all of the Bible. But God, (coughs) but God, and once we are redeemed, God enables us to obey. He enables us to follow his commands. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has been talking about and will continue to talk about in this section of the gospel. The Spirit is the helper. He enables us to know and to do the Father's will. To try and please God, to earn His favor, is not only backwards, it's impossible. Jesus is telling you today that He will make you His friend. And when he has done that, the evidence or the proof that it is so is your obedience. Your obedience is never the way to Jesus. It is an assurance and confidence that Jesus has come to you. Well, there's a second sign of those who are friends of Jesus. They are fruitful. We go back to verse 16, where Jesus was talking about his electing love. He says, I chose and appointed you that. This is what we call grammatically a purpose clause. All that follows the that is the intention of what precedes it. Jesus' love is intentional. And one of the purposes of his love 
for you is that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Some think Jesus was only talking to his disciples about their specific purpose as the apostles. But if that were true, why record this then for us to have? Why use language throughout this section that is applicable to all of us? Why talk about friendship at all if all Jesus meant was the organization of the church? Jesus is telling us that the evidence of our love for him is to bear fruit. Now, remember what we saw last week. Do you remember that Jesus said that we can only bear fruit if we abide in Jesus? And that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So, of course, evidence that you are in Jesus is to bear fruit. Because those who are not in Christ can't bear fruit. But Jesus is more specific here in a way that's helpful. This fruit is fruit that abides, that remains. This is the same word that Jesus has been using throughout the chapter. Eight times he uses this word. Jesus is telling you that when you are loved by him, you are in him and you will see fruit that remains. Far too often we see our work start to fade and go away, don't we? I remember many years ago, more than a decade ago, I needed a new fence for our backyard. My fence was falling apart. And through the help and encouragement of some church members, it became a church project. And a whole bunch of folks showed up at my house and put together a brand new fence with brand new planks of wood, and it looked incredible. Now today, if you come to my house, many of those boards are cracking. Some of those are warping. You know, I don't expect that fence to last me another 20 years. I expect I'm going to have to fix it again. And sometimes that's the way we look at all the things that we do. That they're destined to rot, to fade, to go away. But Jesus is telling you that you will bear fruit from your love for Jesus that will not fade away. So what does that look like? Let me give you a couple of examples. Are you telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for you? That's fruit that abides and remains. If you tell others the gospel and how Jesus has changed you and they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that is eternal fruit. How about serving others? How about helping others in their sanctification? Helping them to grow closer to the Lord. To be committed to the Lord. That's fruit that abides and remains. How about ministering to others so that they can bear fruit in turn? That's fruit that abides, that remains. That's the second way that we see that we love Jesus. And then there is a final sign of the friend of Jesus. It's prayerfulness. Jesus picks this up at the end of verse 16. 
He says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, this is not a purpose clause. This is what we call a result clause. Notice the sequence here. First, Jesus sets his love on you. I chose you. Then your love shows itself in the fruit that you bear. And that then leads to the result of a more effective prayer life. We often are mistaken and think that we need to pray more so that we can serve better. We need to pray so that God will make us more effective in our service for him. But here Jesus is telling us the opposite. Prayer is not a tool that we use. Prayer is communication and communion with God. And so the more we love God, the more we will serve God. And the more we serve God, the more we will want to be with God. Prayer flows from a love for Jesus. Jesus took the time at the most critical moments of his ministry to encourage us about love. He was not just preparing his disciples for what was to come. He was speaking directly to you. This is recorded in God's word for your encouragement today. Jesus knows you need encouragement. He knows you want to be loved. He is telling you that there is no greater love than the love that he has for you. It's a love that had no beginning. It's a love that has no end. Do you know this love? Do you trust Jesus? He's calling to you today to be his friend. He laid down his life so that you would know his love. The love of Christ is the greatest of all loves. May you experience that love today and forever. Let's pray.